0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting Podcast. Today I'm joined by Samcon Models on Twitter. Sean, thank you very much for coming on. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Betting Pod and check out the website businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code B-O-B-P-O-D. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast.
1: Sean, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to join the betting pod.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on. Do you want to start out by uh, going through a little bit about yourself? Sure.
1: Yeah. So, I guess I'm a 25 year old from Wisconsin. Um, I kind of got my start on or in, in gambling Twitter with uh, an NFL model with this past season. Um, I began sharing it. On Reddit and Twitter, uh, starting in around October, and it really caught fire and caught you know a lot of attention. Um, ended up doing pretty well with a 61% hit rate, uh, 18% ROI, and that was actually my first attempt at building a predictive sports model. And um, this past summer, I kind of was inspired by, I'm sure many know of Barry Horse. I believe he was actually on this podcast before. Um, I was inspired by his work with the MLB. And I just kind of decided, hey, I want to jump in. I want to be able to do what he does um, and do it for myself. So then I took a crack at it with the NFL. And surprisingly, it went pretty well. And now I'm in the midst of sharing um, college basketball plays. And then I've built an MLB model for the upcoming MLB season Um, the college basketball model has been doing pretty well it's been pretty low maintenance for me it's not a sport that I particularly enjoy but for whatever reason I'm seeing at least decent results with that one as well
0: so that's a little annoying your first ever sports model as a young man (laughs) and you go 61% and you know high teens to close to 20% ROI is that what you anticipated when you set out to do it
1: no, not even close. Because uh, I was very aware that you know NFL is a really, really hard sport to beat. Um, the books on, you know, they're considered to have the tightest lines. It's the smallest sample size for uh, in terms of how many games are in a season. Um, quite honestly, I couldn't have probably picked a worse sport to uh, take a first crack at it.
0: So, why do you think it was so successful? Do you think it was A large component of luck or you think you do things smarter than anyone else or you do things just differently and it it worked out this season or take us through some of the things that stand out to you
1: sure so um i think i attribute a lot of my success to i guess my ability to predict where the nfl was going um i kind of sensed this change um where there was going to be a big outburst in passing offense um, volume and efficiency. And I kind of built my model from the ground up to be able to um, account for that and then to also adapt as the season goes on and kind of um, dynamically weight the importance of various game factors um, on a week to week basis so that the model was never lagging behind, you know, current team production and was instead. I'm trying to always be a step or two ahead of that.
0: How much of that game, how much of those game factors are subjective or, you know, how much of it can you, you know, pick apart with your eyes versus going into the data with, you know, last three games, for example, it seems like a short period of time to be giving weight. And if it was Pat Mahomes, you know, how long does it take to realize he was good? It's easy to sit back now, but what about throughout the season?
1: Yeah. So in terms of how much of it was subjective, um, I essentially took 2017 end of season data used that as a used that as a starting point and then based on coaching changes scheme changes um, people moving or changing teams uh, new free agents players drafted stuff like that I I guess you could say subjectively tried to project forward um, for teams that wasn't particularly a formulaic um, process but then throughout the season I kind of was very hands-off and let the model do the work itself. And, you know, with Patrick Mahomes, he's a perfect example. Um, Before the season started, I had the Chiefs, let's see here, as the ninth best team in the league. Um, In terms of passing offense, I believe I had them. I can actually look it up here. I had Kansas City as the fourth best passing offense. So I did expect big things from Patrick Mahomes and – Andy Reid always does a great job um, with his offense. Um, But, you know, from from the start, it might not have thought the Chiefs were as great as they ended up being. But, like I said, the model is very um, adaptable and moves on the go. And it's I believe it was by the end of their – let me see here. By the end of their week three game, it had already upgraded the Chiefs from their preseason ranking of being the ninth best team all the way up to the second best team. And then by – three more games after that they were upgraded to the best team in the league and they held that spot in the model, um, until the season ended.
0: Wow. Okay. So in terms of the adaptation throughout the season, how much of that is pre-programmed in the off season and you allow it to do what it's supposed to do versus you going in and, and making any substantial changes that might impact the, the outputs.
1: Yeah. So, um, before the season, I, I kind of came up with this formula that first it would take um, it, it would take the data that I would put in and then it would assign almost kind of like a category rating for five different categories that I, I identified as um, you know kind of my building blocks for the, the, the formula. and it was basically pass offense, pass defense. Um, rush offense, rush defense, and then special teams. And um, what it does is it looks across the league at each team and their performance in each category and sees how much performance in that category um, correlates to overall team strength. So then what it does is um, it helps determine a formula that gives a correlation coefficient to each of those categories. And then it spits out an, exp- an expected wins total number for the entire season. And then the great thing is is as there's new data every week, all I have to do is um, update the underlying data. and the model is taking that data and it's evaluating it every single week. And if it sees that you know pass offense is leading or it correlates more with team strength, then it's going to adjust and increase the correlation coefficient that goes with past offense in that formula and then it'll bring down the weights of, you know, other categories that are proving not to be as important um, when it comes to team performance and team strength.
0: I see. That's that's not something that every 25-year-old can do or someone building their first model can do. How did you build that skill set to be able to do that?
1: Um it was, honestly it was a, a lot of reading, a lot of iterative work um the, the final model that I kind of landed on was probably oh man I can't even remember probably my fourth or fifth like big I guess revamp of what of the work that I had at the time um, and then I I don't know what what really determined or what helped me determine that that was the spot I should stop at but um, after seeing the first couple of weeks in action I could kind of tell I had something special especially seeing you know these team affected wins numbers change dynamically based on their performance in each of those categories i knew that you know i there was a pretty good chance the model was never going to fall behind and there was a good chance it was always going to be one step ahead so
0: in terms of technical i guess skill set to be able to do these types of things it sounds like the model itself is somewhat like self-improving and can augment its own process week by week based on more information feeding in. What area of research is that relevant to or what areas do you dig into to understand and I guess identify and be able to execute those types of capabilities for yourself?
1: Yeah, so um, a lot of my uh, reading in the, in the past offseason in, in preparation for this was, I mean the first thing that I did was try to learn more about the advanced side of football. Um, so a lot of my reading material was just understanding, you know, what, what does a team go through week by week or over the course of a season? And one thing I found was that a lot of, or I'd say almost every single NFL team, you know, what they're putting out there on week one and two is, I, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe it's a feeler or just kind of a very stripped down idea of what they want to accomplish. And then over the course of the season, they're refining on some of their more advanced you know techniques and schemes so you know with that in mind i figured i had to build something that could you know identify those changes and those developments um so then with with that in mind from the start i kind of made sure that every part of the model kind of catered to that season-long development that each team goes through
0: yeah and to Take it back sort of five, ten, fifteen years, people probably had power ratings and they updated them week by week based on what they saw on the field or what they noticed in box scores or even through advanced statistics. It sounds like yours is dynamically changing uh with that new data and with that new information you know the inputs and and then those different coefficients. Is that what is that machine learning or is that how do you how do you sort of talk through that when you talk to other people with the technical expertise that you have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish it was as cool and comprehensive as machine learning, but it's it's honestly just um, it's constantly using linear regression for people who are familiar with um, you know that that idea. It's just using linear regression where I kind of identify what I like to call anchor met- metrics, which are the metrics I choose that define team strength. And then I have underlying metrics, which attempt to, um, I guess, represent, uh, I guess, performance metrics that explain or try to correlate to, you know, those anchor metrics. So I guess the starting point was finding anchor metrics that help define team strength and then finding those underlying deeper level metrics that help explain performance in those anchor metrics, and then it kind of just works bottom, top to bottom, and and it helps you know come up with those dynamic correlation coefficients throughout the season.
0: How long did it take to figure out the right anchor metrics?
1: Um, not too long, because I kind of I kind of settled on my anchor metrics. and just kind of decided this is what I'm going to stick with for now, and then I'm going to build the underlying supporting um, structure that helps explain those metrics because I was pretty convinced that what I was using um, was pretty indicative of team strength just based on historical data and historical performance of that data and how it correlated with um, team performance and whatnot. Um, But I will say that although I did um, have pretty favorable results with the anchor metrics I used this past season, I've already... Um, looked elsewhere, and I will very likely be changing my anchor metrics in some form um, for the twenty nineteen season.
0: Is that based on construction of regular offenses now, or rule changes, or you know personnel groupings? What are some of the things you look at when you are identifying what the right anchor metrics might be moving forward?
1: That's actually a really good question. Um, I guess what, what made me change my anchor metric was I felt that, you know, I had from working with the model all season, I had a pretty good idea, um, of what I thought each team was capable of, um, or not even capable of, of what they achieved on the field. And I thought the anchor metric that I used in the 2018 season by season end, when I was looking at that and kind of you know, sorted it from top to bottom and looked at where each team fell. I felt like it was not the most representative of, you know, what I thought um, each team was was able to do in the past season. So I kind of looked around and, you know, it wasn't like a massive change um, in terms of where teams landed, but I did find something that certainly fit um, – kind of how I viewed the hierarchy of teams and, you know, the tiers of different power levels of teams. And I just kind of decided, you know, that this anchor metric will be better for me in 2019.
0: How different is, obviously, year zero, you don't have a model and you got to build it from scratch. Year one to year two, or season one to season two, what does that process look like for you? Are you digging into a lot of the inputs and variables to make sure they're right or going through the, the different coefficients you mentioned and making sure, you know, being rigorous about are they performing or was there some short, small sample luck involved that, you know, maybe I could have done better on those things or what what else are you looking at throughout this off-season?
1: Yeah, so for this off-season, I, as I was actually building the model this past off-season, I kind of flagged a couple things that I thought could proved to be troublesome during the season and i kind of monitored that as the season went along and um big ones that i had flagged as potential problem areas ended up popping up as such um one being thursday night football games uh, um which the model uh, seemed to struggle with throughout the entire season that i allowed it to play on that subset of games um so i believe it was by the end of week nine, I had actually removed that entire set of games from model consideration, um, and then the other was high point spreads for underdogs, and the reason being for that was with me anticipating a increase in you know pass efficiency and that obviously leads to more scoring, and when you have more volatile scoring environments, um, it can be tougher to cover some of those larger spreads just because when you get up to those higher spreads, you can have um, a 10% wind probability stretch kind of span over more points um, than you can at lower spreads. So for example, a 10% shift in wind probability covers the stretch from minus two and a half to minus three and a half. Whereas a similar 10% wind win probability shift um, can carry a spread all the way from seven and a half, seven and a half all the way through nine and a half. So you have you know a, a half to one point um, spread or change compared to a near you know three three points of spread. Um, so I just thought you know if scoring is more volatile, then I need to keep an eye on that. Um, and then sure enough, that also popped um, around the same time as the Thursday night football issue. Then I removed those spreads for consideration, and I and I told you know everyone that was following the model at the time, I'll use the off season to kind of reevaluate or trying to find a solution on how I can better um, distribute those win probability percentage points so that um, even in higher scoring environments, that you know they're not performing worse than any other subset of spreads. Um, but outside of that. Um, I'm not really looking to change too much structurally about the model. I know I would mentioned switching anchor metrics, which seems like a big change. Um, but outside of that, obviously, there's, you know, the phrase don't fix what isn't broken. Um, so I'm trying my best to adhere to that. Um, but, yeah, I, those those two that I mentioned were the biggest red flags I had on my list. And um, I was glad to catch on to it early enough. And then I'll take this off season to kind of, go back and see um, what adjustments can be made.
0: How important is the predicting the future of the sport part? And you mentioned for NFL, passing is important, passing efficiency, and then, the, you know, obviously relates to scoring. What if running backs are the new craze next year and you see running backs averaging 33 carries a game and 115 yards and ground and pound and, and for whatever reason all these old school coaches come back and dominate the NFL and... Patrick Mahomes misses the playoffs and everyone complains he has, you know, 38 <laughs> attempts every game. Would that blow up your model or is that just a part of it and it's not a dominant factor in all of this?
1: Um, so I guess it depends. A lot of it is you can kind of pick up where the league is going based on the way coaches are talking, the way GMs are talking in the offseason and I kind of and kind of like, you know, where dollars are being spent. Um I mean, last offseason I know it's a very anecdotal um, example, and it's just one one, one example, but um, the Chiefs gave a massive contract to Sammy Watkins last offseason, and to me, to pay that time on to be your second-best wide receiver in an offense like Andy Reid's, it kind of signaled to me. It was one of many things to signal to me, like, hey, this is where the league is headed. And then, you know, all the recent coaching changes to more – I guess younger coaches or more modern minded um, coaches was a big signal. So a lot of it is just kind of keeping, you know, the ear to the, my ear to the ground and hearing, you know, what, what's being said and seeing w- w- what's being done in terms of team construction. Um, and if by chance that all slips by me, I'm still pretty confident that, you know, I might have a rough first few weeks, but given, you know, how quickly the model was able to adapt, I mean, even with me predicting that boom last season i still was uh, although i did predict the boom i probably didn't even come close to predicting how big that boom would be i mean it was massive last year um so i guess even if it does slip by i mean i'm pretty confident the model will be able to pick up on it by week three week four at the latest
0: yeah okay so if the rg3 season happens again and everyone's talking about you know the option and you know run pass option last year or having those mobile quarterbacks and you know manzel goes in the first round because he's got a certain skill set if that's not the right path for the nfl and the defensive coordinators figure that out everything is salvageable and in a couple of weeks time it sounds like you'll be able to notice and adjust and shift path accordingly yep
1: yeah definitely
0: yeah that's interesting
1: even with you know last year's whole passing boom, we did have you know one team midseason or a little bit later than midseason. You know the Ravens, they went from a team that was actually pretty proficient um, passing wise with Joe Flacco, even though he doesn't really pass the eye test. What they were doing on the field and how the data reflected what they were doing, it it was at least above average. Um, and then obviously they completely changed their identity and they became a team that ran first ran second and ran third and would never stop running. And the model was able to, you know, identify that. And, you know, even with the rest of the league going one way and them going the other way, you know, it wasn't as if Baltimore's, um, evaluation suffered or that their whole change and going of a different direction brought down the model's ability to evaluate teams that continued on the path. Um, in fact, as I'm looking at the data, Baltimore, which this is kind of crazy to me, um, despite you know them starting the season uh, with Joe Flacco, their expected wins number from the preseason to the season end, um, the model was only off by 0.718 wins, um, which that is actually one of the biggest reasons or one of the biggest things that signaled to me that both the model is highly capable of um, kind of seeing where the league is going, and maybe a little bit of a testament of, I guess, my ability last off season. Last off season was that out of all thirty-two teams, there were only let's see here. I used to know this offhand. Five. There were only ten teams that um, had more than an expected win off from their original projection from the preseason.
0: Wow. Okay. Interesting. And how – I guess it's probably easy in hindsight, but for let's take an example. Cliff Kingsbury coming from Texas Tech. He went to California for five minutes and now he's in Arizona. Are you thinking about him as a coach and what that means or are you thinking more broadly and league-wide in terms of, all right, no one's paying running backs, big deals, they're going to rely on rookies as well, you know, those type of you know, Nick Chubbs type season, Kareem Hunt – he's going to be there next year or what type of, you don't have to give away what your predictions for the future are in the NFL and how that might shape your model. But in terms of the granular details like Kingsbury or the more broader concepts, what are you eyeing for the seasons to come?
1: So next season, I would expect the league to at least learn a little bit how to deal with this highly efficient passing. Um, on a broad level, I think you know having a lot of this now on tape, um, a lot of these first and second year coaches kind of establishing who they are, who what their offenses look like, and whatnot. Um, I think defenses will get better because defenses always, I think, at least in modern NFL, tend to lag behind just a little bit um, behind um, surges in offenses. Um, so I, I do think. We'll see a slight scale back in terms of um, offensive production, especially on the passing side. Um, on a more micro level, like you said, with Klingsbury, Hick- Clingsbury, um, I haven't done too much work with the model yet, but just from what I know of him and his work, he does seem to fit that mold of you know young coach with dynamic offensive ideas. So I would expect, especially with how brutal Wilkes was for the Cardinals last year, I mean, it'd be hard to project the Cardinals being any worse than they were on that side of the ball. Um, But yeah, kind of, I guess to answer your question more broadly, I do look at, you know, league-wide landscape. So trying to account for scheme changes and what a coach is bringing to a team, you know, kind of their offensive philosophy. Like me, I'm a a Packers fan, um, life Packers fan. And we hired Matt LeFleur in the offseason. And I'm admittedly... Obviously, I know more about that situation because I'm a fan of the team, so I, I guess I can speak more to that situation. Um, and I got to say, I'm not very I'm not very pleased with where I think the team is headed. Um, I don't, and I don't think Packer fans will be happy by the end of next season with where the team ends up.
0: Would you have preferred to keep McCarthy?
1: Oh, that's so tough because I've been on the fire McCarthy train for (laughs) so long. I I was like, it it was directly after that NFC championship game, uh, choke against the Seahawks, I was immediately on. I mean, even before that, I was pretty iffy on him and some of his play calling um, decisions. And, you know, that game was really the straw that broke my back. But, of course, it then took what three more seasons for it to actually break enough people's backs to get him out. Um I guess just for the sake of change and providing a new look, I'd rather have LaFleur despite of what I think he's capable of and what he'll he's gonna try to do with this team. Um yeah, I mean I I don't know. I hate to I hate to rag on McCarthy that much. I obviously he's a professional football coach. I'm sure he knows what he's doing on some level for what it's worth. I think he's fantastic at quarterback quarterback development. So I think if he ever finds himself in a coaching position again, I think pairing him with a young quarterback again would be the most, or it would be the best use of McCarthy's talent. Um, But yeah, I would much rather I, despite my gloom, I'd rather stick with LeFleur at this point.
0: Interesting. So tell me about the model, the one season so far. Looking at the results, did it skew one direction with a team or a division or were you high on you know, young quarterbacks with dynamic coaches like Andy Reid and Sean McVay and, and those types or were you pretty happy with the, the way the model performed across the board and generally it was just 61% is fair across the board or was it 70% in a couple of areas and 50-ish percent along the rest, if you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So... I I definitely think um, it's only it tended to perform better with underdogs um, was a huge kind of money maker for the model, um, and particularly road underdogs. It, it favored road team or it perform I shouldn't say favored it performed better with road teams and it performed better with underdogs, and then kind of as a combination of those two, um, the best split. Of combining those two categories. The road underdog performed the highest um, in terms of profit yield and ROI, kind of looking at both um, in terms of like teams. And if, if any of your listeners are interested, I actually wrote um, kind of a model recap for the NFL model. Um, it's on my website, samconmodels.com um, and it kind of goes into detail about kind of these subsections that you're asking about. Um, but the the team it did the best betting on was the Panthers this year um which included the model's biggest play of the season which was uh when the Panthers played the Saints in week 15 and that was quite the heart attack inducing <laughs> cover um i'm uh yeah I, i'll just leave it at that well, they like that plus 6 is-
0: at home was that the game
1: yeah, they were plus six at home. Um, I think the, the Saints, from what I can remember, it was such a rush. Um, the Saints were in the red zone, and then I believe they fumbled into the end zone, and it was a touchback. And then, like, they they in 95% of cases, I, the Saints would have covered, but had some things go my way and the model's way, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um Some of the, and yeah, looking at the rest of these team splits now that I pull them up, um, essentially the model rarely found um, value on kind of the teams that the public loves. Uh, I see the Pats here didn't have a single wager on them all season. Um, The Packers had one. uh, The Rams had maybe one or two. And a lot of that is kind of, I, I guess, reflective my own takes of betting markets, which is, you know, good teams are going to be overpriced and inefficiently priced um, just because from a psychological standpoint, your average bettor is going to typically side with a um, favorited team versus a team that's laying points. So you're always gonna I think very broadly in any sport, any betting market, you're going to find more value betting underdogs than you will favorites. And then similarly, if you're a totals better, I think, you know, psychologically a better is more likely to bet on an over than an under. So then obviously over time as Vegas kind of sees this, they're going to, you know, account for it and make adjustments on their end and kind of inefficiently tip the scale that way so that they can take advantage of that psychological effect. Um, so I guess the, the main point I'm trying to make is when I look at the teams I profited most on with the model this past off season, a lot of them are teams that had losing records. Um, whereas, you know, some of those playoff teams had either very little action or had very um, marginal, marginal, Um, action that wasn't really you know it didn't swing one way or the other
0: so how useful is it to be a fan like let's say you're a fan of the nfl you enjoy the nfl the most is that positive for the model or is that negative for the model you adding extra couple of points to the packers because you're a fan and you you have a soft spot or is it the other way you you're hard on the packers because that's your team and then they get killed a little bit in the model and you is any of that relevant from a fan's perspective, I guess, versus college basketball, where you may not be as much of a fan? Does it help to be dispassionate and somewhat emotionally removed from the sport, do you think?
1: It's kind of uh, it's kind of like almost a chicken and, a, and the egg type dilemma, where you know, as you learn more about a sport and kind of the advanced analytical side of a sport, you've kind of learn to remove yourself from those biases, whether they're working for a team or against the team. Um, admittedly, I mean, I've always been a fan of the NFL, but I don't think the NFL prior to this season would have scratched maybe my top three or four preferred sports to watch. Um, and I think that, I think that definitely helped me because Taking the time, like I said, to read up and learn the sport on a deeper level um, kind of helped me remove maybe some of the biases I had where I thought, you know, oh, this team is definitely good or doing this in football is how it should be done. And it was more of look at all this like supporting evidence that, you know, this is actually the case and it helps you kind of strip away your own preconceived biases of you know what the success or failure look like in the nfl and you kind of you're you're learning and you're learning you know why you were wrong essentially and why you shouldn't be building in those incorrect perceptions of the nfl into the model i don't know if that makes sense
0: yeah no that makes sense you need to have some of the technical you know serious fan or or expert knowledge to be able to have at least some imagination with the data, and at least you know it's not always clear-cut or simple or easy to follow. So if you do have some specific knowledge, it can help guide, I would imagine, in in certain aspects. Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah, definitely.
0: So thinking about next season, 16 weeks in the NFL season, uh, not too many games. There's a couple hundred NFL games, whatever it might be. Let's say the model could have gone anywhere from 48% to 74% and you landed at 61 this season how are you going to battle the the idea of the small sample size of one NFL season with continuing to have confidence in your model and that it will perform and continually updating that but updating it do you do you think that you know what I'm extremely confident we're going to hit 55 to 65% again or are you really considering the idea or the thought or the fact that it it's possible that it could regress and head back towards what's a normal number for the rest of
1: us uh, layman's? <laughs> um that's a good question uh I guess my own expectation of, as of now is I mean I'm hoping given the time that I have until next season that I can take the knowledge I've kind of amassed during the season as well as the knowledge that I hope to gain in the off season, um to help improve upon my understanding and the model's ability to be predictive so I guess the short answer is I'm I'm expecting to do better. I'm definitely, I, I, I guess, maybe, and th- maybe this is a overconfidence. I, I expect this year's performance to almost be the floor for next year. Um, and, and some of the things that I guess give me that confidence are some of the, I guess I can call them behavior tendencies of the model's performance, where um, you know, one of the biggest indicators that a model is doing what it's supposed to um, when it is doing well is it's turning higher rates of profit um, when its disagreement level is going up. So, um, for example, uh, three, three and a half unit plays and higher had a 19% ROI, which was higher than the overall model R, R- ROI of 18%. And then taking it a step further, five five 5.5 unit plays and higher had a 21% ROI, which is higher than the previous two. And then taking that a step further, 7.5 unit plays and higher um, had a 23.5% ROI. So you can kind of see that um, as you step up that disagreement level, the model is returning higher levels of profit, which is one of the golden signs um, that a model is doing what it's supposed to be doing because i mean if you perform worse the, m- the more a model disagrees then you're likely your results are likely just a result of variance and like you said like you, you you're probably more due for regression than than you'd like to hear but that was certainly when i was doing my season end um, analysis of the model that was definitely the number one thing that caught my eye and kind of gave me reassurance that I should at least expect equivalent results for the upcoming season.
0: Interesting. Let's talk a little about a little bit about the betting side. Then, how do you how did you approach it when you built the model and you got a week before you know the last preseason game and you were all ready to roll for for week one? What was your thought process behind how to utilize the performance of such a model?
1: Um, another great question. So, I guess were you going to take a
0: wait and see approach and see how it went for the first couple of weeks or months? Or were you going to dig right in? Cause you, Fire thought, yeah, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I kind of went in knowing that if there was a prime earning period for a predictive model, it was going to be at the beginning of a season because that is hypothetically when you're going to disagree most with most with the market. Um, so I just figured, you know what? Like, if I'm not confident to put my own money on it, but I'm, but I'm expecting it to do well, then like what does that say of me and my actual belief of the model's ability? So I actually, you know, I, I fired away on it personally. Um, and then I gave it a few weeks before I started sharing it publicly. But yeah, like the, the first few weeks were some of, some, of the some of the model's highest earning weeks throughout the season.
0: How difficult or different or easy was the betting component? Were you literally just getting a, a number and checking the market and placing bets when you saw a large enough deviation and you might have had some, you know, staking theories behind it, but generally it was a pretty robotic process, or were you using some gut feel and some intuition and some, you know, watching the markets and the odds move type stuff as well?
1: Yeah, that that would have actually been the second largest subjective element of this entire experiment was deciding when to kind of, you know, pull the trigger on a spread. Um, it definitely wasn't, you know, like an automated process. I had to have a, a large enough disagreement to qualify as a model play show, but not fire on it for a couple of days. Um, and a lot of that was, um, I was pretty confident in my ability to read and predict, um, you know, game markets and where spreads would go just based on I had been betting the NFL for probably four or five years um, prior to that. And just knowing typically, you know, depending on where Vegas setting a spread compared to the look ahead line and how public sentiment is building on a team or both teams and just kind of, you know, mapping out, I think this spread will be able to hit this point, you know, at this time of the week and kind of anticipating that. Now there were definitely times where that bit me in the butt and I, there were probably a couple cases where I fired off on a number or was too late firing off on a number. And had I gotten the better number, you know, maybe that flips a loss to a win or a push to a win. Um, But from what I can remember kind of combing through those examples, it wasn't, you know, alarmingly large, so I think I did okay in that regard.
0: So how aggressive do you feel you can be with your NFL betting this season? Given what you know now with performance last season, especially what with the discussion around as your confidence grew in a disagreement, your performance essentially grew or was was better. Are you feeling like you're gonna open the shoulders a little bit and be a lot more aggressive given you know, I'm guessing as a 25-year-old young man, there's plenty of other options if if things go pear-shaped quickly, and it might be worth the risk. Or are you thinking 10, 15, 20 years down the road and protecting your bank with you know both hands and both arms and your whole body?
1: That's actually a really good question. That's something that I don't think I've been asked yet. Um, I think I, I'm I'm one of those betters who you know preaches day and night about bankroll management so as fun as it would be to kind of you know push all the chips in um i don't think i'll do that i think i'll stick the course and you know stick to what a unit is to me and you know scale that with the disagreement levels that come with how the model works but i mean who knows like like i said i have this college basketball model in progress and um the mlb model coming up and if those do well and you know my my bankroll that I play with um, grows significantly then obviously I can adjust what a unit is in terms of bankroll and potentially bet bigger
0: How difficult was getting outs for you given performance is good anyone who's tracking the model or is tracking the performance of your bets for example like you are they would see that it's a really valuable model. Are you having issues with that yet, or do you think you're going to encounter those types of issues, or have you thought through that process at all?
1: um I don't think I ran into too many issues with outlets this past season. I think by by the end of the season, I don't know if it was just my brain playing with me, or maybe my internet was slow. But it almost felt like every time I went to go press confirm bet, it took just a little longer, as if like someone was, you know, reviewing what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were definitely by the end of the season instances where I, like I said, I would try to subjectively decide when to fire off on a on a spread. Um, I, I would watch a spread kind of be stuck in uh, for a solid twenty four to forty eight hours, and then as soon as I would release a model play to my followers that's that spread or at least you know the juice on that spread was moving within two minutes which was you know like that, that's a pretty big rush in in and of itself um i obviously have no way of telling if i actually caused that but you know it, it was nice to think it was nice to think that it was the model doing that
0: yeah i'm sure there's some traders listening who are giggling to themselves and probably know a lot more than, than I do anyway. But on the bankroll management, what are some of the pillars that you rely on? If you've you know, thought about it a fair bit, it sounds like you've given it some conscious thought. What are important to you?
1: Uh, what's important to me, one of my biggest things that I preach um, you know, to my followers and like all the write-ups I do is laying excessive juice is a great way to kind of kill your bankroll slowly. Um, it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts. Um, I'm a big, big proponent of selling points or half points to lower juice. Um, Nitrogen is a great book for that. Um, And there's plenty of books that give you the option, but I think it's incredibly important to have a book that gives you that option because I get so many messages daily about hey, you tweeted it out or you shared that the model plays this, I can't get that number, or, like, I can't even sell, I can't even reduce my juice if I wanted that number. And I can't preach enough. Having a book that allows you to sell points um, is invaluable. Um, and for anyone that gets deeper into uh, into betting, you'll either generate data or come across data that heavily supports um you know, the notion that laying less juice over time is going to save you and make you a lot more money in the long, long term. Um, outside of that, um, I still do it. I think 99% of them still do it despite what they might say. Um, degenerate betting, like, you know, those small bets we all throw on the side just to have action on something Mm -hmm. or just to make something entertaining. Um, if you're very serious about, you know, bankroll management and turning a consistent profit, you know, those bets add up. It's it sounds obvious when it's said out loud, but like, I don't think anyone who throws, you know, a little bit of money on a bet realizes, you know, the impact that has. Um, the I guess the way I've almost begun to look at it is, you know, every degenerate bet you throw down, um, whether it wins or lose, it's almost like you're paying juice on your future bets because like i guess inherently making a degenerate bet is negative ev so you know instead of maybe thinking about it as ev you're realizing in that moment you can think about it as well now i'm going to be paying i'm going to have to make up so much ground on my next x amount of bets to make up for that decision and you know given what I just said about paying juice over time, like uh, having that EV always kind of taking along with you is is going to hurt over the long run.
0: So take me through that paying the juice part over a long period of time. Do you mean that there's bad juice and good juice? or Because sometimes it's just a math question with, you know, we're talking minus 7, minus 110 versus minus 7.5 plus 102 or plus 105 or whatever it is. Sometimes it's just a mathematical equation based on some general assumptions whether or not it's a, a good half point to, to sell. Or are you saying that just generally you'd prefer to lay one oh five versus one ten uh every time type of situation?
1: Yeah, so it's a mix of both. Um my personal juice tolerance level is typically around minus one oh five. I hate paying minus one ten. It eats at me every time I do. Um I would consider minus 110 my upper limit. I think there were maybe, let me actually look here. I think I have it open. There were maybe 10, 10 um, bets from the NFL season that paid more juice than that. And the only instances of doing so would have been, like you said, at key numbers where, you know, juice kind of goes longer before it shifts on or off a key number. Um, obviously, the NFL is unique in that element where the difference between minus two and a half and three or six and a half and plus seven you know that's a world's of difference um, so NFL might be something so somewhat of an exception but with you know college basketball going right now I I personally um, just refuse to, to essentially pay juice that's more than minus 105
0: okay And what about when you're looking at a weekend schedule or a Sunday slate and you find a handful of plus EV options or three or two, you ever consider parlaying a couple of those or what are your thoughts generally on on the parlay topic?
1: Yeah, I guess my answer would be, you know, the textbook answer you hear from a lot of people, which is, you know, parlays are in all likelihood, in most cases, negative EV for you. Um, I will say, though, that... I have come across you know betters that I talk to now um, that do utilize parlays especially open parlays but you really really need to know what you're doing with them to to make sure that they are plus EV Um, and the odds are that you know 99% of betters don't have you know those tools to make that happen and to be quite honest i am probably amongst that 99 percent i don't play a lot of parlays um i can't even remember the last time i would have played a parlay maybe oh i guess i do i do a lot of um mma ufc betting and I, i guess i do utilize them there um but yeah generally speaking if you're if you're just looking to parlay you know two spreads, three spreads, four spreads, or round robin, in all likelihood, you're not helping yourself out.
0: And what about futures? With the way the model updates pretty rapidly and is very dynamic and has shown to be, at least for one NFL season, uh, very good at that, are you considering, certainly the next season, adding some futures to your ticket count and trying to have some, I guess, even, you know, Pat Mahomes, MVP-type bets after week three or or some of those types of things in, in this next upcoming NFL season?
1: Yeah, that's definitely one thing I think I personally can get better at as a better is kind of taking, you know, what my model is saying and kind of find finding correlated futures. I did play a few that were like, you know, Super Bowl futures and one divisional future this past season. Um, but like you said, I think I can extend that. And this is actually something I've been working on with the MLB model, um, you know, looking at MVP or like home run totals in the MLB. So I guess I can kind of take what I'm doing with the MLB model and apply that to the upcoming NFL season and maybe you know, looking at passing leaders, rushing leaders, MVPs, things of that, that nature.
0: So let's go back two years. If you had to talk to yourself back then about what was to come, what are some of the things, or tips, or strategies, or thoughts you would have, and you would share with your own self? Let's say two years ago.
1: Oh man, I probably would have slapped myself in the face and said, <laughs> "Stop betting now." There's, <laughs> there's more, pro- there's more promising pastures ahead. Um, don't even waste your time. Uh, yeah, I, that's that was that's the first thing that comes to mind.
0: And what about people that reach out to you? You're pretty well known on the uh, Twitter sphere and. And people follow your models, I know, and the the Bedded Up write-ups are fascinating reads when they come out. What what type of advice do you give to others who are looking into this space and want to replicate the type of thing you're capable of doing?
1: Yeah, so that's probably a question I get in my DMs anywhere between maybe five to ten times a day, depending on how crazy things are. Um, And what I always tell people who come to me and say, hey, can you... Give me some pointers. Can you shoot me some links? You know, give me a, a starting point. What I what I tell everyone is the best way to go about this is to do it on your own and kind of just jump in and start learning because it, it's twofold. You want to create this kind of self sufficient process where you are kind of depending um, on you and you alone and your skill set and that way like when when thing when you get stuck and things get hard or maybe in the middle of the season when you want to make adjustments you know you only have yourself to look to and you know um, you, you're just incredibly self-sufficient and then the second part of that as to why i recommend that or kind of i guess in other words shy away from giving specific advice is if you go to someone and ask Um, than for specific uh, material in all likelihood even if you do end up building something substantial and something with an edge in all likelihood you're going to build something that has an edge that's been diluted um, from whoever you drew inspiration or got direction from Um, and obviously you know with betters as a whole getting smarter with the rise of modeling in the past however many years and obviously vegas is getting smarter every day Um, machine learning is going through the roof you know you need to you need to find you need to generate an edge that is unique and and that way you know you'll, you'll get the best results
0: interesting how do you couple that with a lot of advice in this sort of range or this topic or these questions are Surround yourself with amazing, bright, smart people and learn from them. Is there a place for that as well? And also, let your own, I guess, approach shine through within that.
1: I guess what I would say to that is, if you you know do what I say and you become self-sufficient and you generate something you know meaningful, it'll naturally catch eyes, um, and then it'll catch the right eyes, and you'll kind of take that next step where you know you'll either be brought into, you know, invited to, to those types of groups. Um, I can definitely say um, after the success of my NFL model a couple months ago, I had a couple guys on Twitter, some of the, like, I guess the bigger, or bigger guys on gambling Twitter kind of, you know, um, take me in and kind of show me, you know, the next step or, like, some, some things they do that I might not um, be doing already. And, you know, a lot of people might say like, but I need that step to even become a profitable better Then, in reality, you know, you, you would have never became a truly profitable better in the first place. Um, You know, you, you kind of have to prove your worth first before you can extract value from others, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And before I let you go, I just want to ask about what's in store for the website, the the future of the models. I know you've done some fantastic work with raising some money pretty recently. Who for for those who are interested in having access to the model, which is really cool, and I certainly commend you on that. Are you going to be writing more? Are you going to be a bit quieter and silent? Is the website going to be flush with ripe content, or, or what's in store?
1: Yeah, so I kind of have very big plans for my website um you had mentioned previously you know i had done write-ups with bedded up and i kind of um went a different direction recently and kind of went my own road so i i i do i've been sticking to this weekly MLB write-up schedule um essentially kind of going through various topics on what you should be looking for when you're modeling and like how to how to take the metrics out there and put them to use um, I don't, you know, necessarily tell you the, the commands and and you know, the programming elements, um, more so what's out there, how to apply it. Um, uh, I definitely am trying to build my website from the ground up. I kind of wanted to serve as a hub, um, for, you know, that side of betting. And I don't know if I'm too optimistic um, if I'm being too optimistic in this regard, but my my macro level hope is I think what would be really cool and fascinating is to build something that can eventually become almost the the, the can economy uh, the can academy um, if you have heard of that of um, you know predictive sports modeling where it's very accessible, easy to learn um, and kind of like an incredible, incredibly useful um, resource for people who want to learn um, about predictive sports modeling and even get into it themselves.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I think, you know, we've gone through one NFL season. I'm sure it's the very, very beginning. So bright future in store. And hopefully uh, as things progress, more and more people will follow you and your story and, and hopefully uh, pick up a lot of things along the way. Sean, I had a million other questions, but I've kept you long enough, so I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, and sharing some of your thoughts in this space, and I have no doubt we'll chat again soon and hopefully do this again for another hour, another hour uh, potentially next season.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Th- thanks for the interesting uh, questions and conversation. It's I, I, I love this stuff, just talking you know, to other people in, in this space
0: we'll definitely have to do it again thanks again Sean for coming on
1: thank you